Hello and welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Summer Speaker Series. My name is Jamie Miller and I'm the Editor-in-Chief and Founder of the Journal. In this episode, I speak to Paul Prestia. Mr. Prestia is a New York civil rights and criminal defense attorney that is known for giving a voice to the voiceless. He is most recognizable for his representation of Kaylee Frauder, who served three years without a trial in Rikers Island Jail after being accused of stealing a backpack. After Khalif's suicide in 2015, Mr. Prestia helped Kaylee's mom sue the city for wrongful death. Mr. Prestia was featured in Time, Jay-Z's documentary about Kaylee's case. We experienced some audio difficulties during the recording, but the interview with Mr. Prestia is worth listening to. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. With um, all these protests going on, what has your work looked like over the past few months? Well, the dynamic has changed, but the substance of it has not. Uh, what we're seeing is the, you know, whereas, you know, I, I've done so much work with regard to the jails and prisons in our city and the abuses by corrections officers. I think what this underscores is the abuse by police officers on innocent civilians. So basically what we're seeing are police officers who are abusing their authority, who unprovoked are attacking and assaulting peaceful protesters. And that cannot be tolerated and should not go unpunished. I mean, merely for marching or ex or exercising their First Amendment rights to assemble and to speak their voice, uh, <clears throat> so many innocent people who are not um, who are only involved in the protest for the cause mm -hmm. and not for any other periphery reasons or to cause any trouble or looking for any trouble, really, right. and to speak about. Um, the issues that are facing our country right now are being harmed by police officers who are just imposing their authority, authority and their will uh, on these on these people. And um, it, it's really disturbing to see that and to speak to some of the victims of these criminal acts that the police officers are committing on our citizens. Um, I completely agree. I recently sat in one of the New York City Council meetings and heard from a lot of victims about um, abuses they faced. For a citizen after um, police misconduct during a protest, what are the legal steps to seeking justice? Well, one thing that's helpful is to try to get an investigation initiated mm -hmm. to help identify the officers because sometimes the officers... You know, it, it's fallen into sort of two categories, right? It's uh, protesters who are issued summons, okay. you know, for whatever reason that the officers contrive, um, most of them baseless. And I anticipate that many of them, if not all, will get dismissed. Some are issued summons. Some are just really uh, beaten or, you know... Um, or have force used on them unnecessarily uh, without any summons at all. 
Right. Uh, so the first, so sometimes w- with regard to that, it's difficult to identify the officers. So we try to get an investigation started to help identify the officers who are, who are involved if we cannot do so from the paperwork that they generate. In these cases, it's very minimal, to say the least. Um, and then what we do is file notice of the claim. You know, obviously we want to interview the the client or potential client to speak to them and find out what happened and f- find out if they were injured or, you know, the duration that they were in jail. But, you know, in any event, it's a traumatic experience for a- anyone who's been falsely arrested or, you know, right. even detained for a few hours, right? Um, it's not something anyone expects or deserves when they attend one of these protests. So, uh, and then we file notice of claim, intent, letting the city know our intent to possibly sue them later down the line. Mm-hmm. And then we just, you know, follow the pro- the legal process after that, which is, you know, they'll have a preliminary hearing with the city, sort of an informal deposition. And then later on, we'll file a lawsuit on their behalf once we get more information regarding their case. If it doesn't settle prior to that. Right. Um, With all of these cases, I know in New York City, as well as Chicago, where Northwestern is located, there have been curfews. Do protesters' rights and what they're legally entitled to change um, during if a curfew is put in place? Technically, it could. Technically, it could. You know, if the city could prove that you were disobeying the the city-issued curfew and you're you know, and you're cited for that, then it does diminish your right to claim false arrest because technically you weren't abiding by the curfew, right? So that sort of mitigates that argument. Um, But it's not necessarily a bar to going forward in that type of case, depending on the facts and circumstances of it. Interesting. Um, I kind of want to switch over to the Kayleaf Browder case because that's where I first heard of you and um, he ended up having a huge effect on the criminal justice system. Um, Uh When were you approached to uh, be a lawyer on this case? It was just a few weeks after Khalif had been released from Rikers Island. I had so that was June. Uh, it was very early in July of two thousand thirteen. I when I first met him. Interesting. I had read somewhere that he, um, his family approached a few other attorneys who wouldn't take the case or felt that it was not very different from other cases. Um, what do you think the hesitancy was there? I think from a legal point of view, Mm -hmm. strictly legal, there were some issues regarding the fact that he was identified by a third party, which which sometimes and oftentimes complicates uh, this type of case going forward in a lawsuit because it takes the blame off an individual police officer if there's a third party victim that says, that's the person who robbed me or assaulted me, right? Um, so I, I believe that was the hesitancy. I, I don't know for a certainty because I didn't speak to any other attorneys. I just knew when I met Khalif that I had to help him. Whether it was going to be complicated or difficult, 
uh, I needed to represent him and I needed to help him in any way that I can. And if it, you know, if it worked out that, you know, his case got thrown out because of some technical issue like the one I just mentioned to you, then so be it. But I need, I know I need to get justice for Khalif. And then obviously the more that he told me about what he went through in his ordeal, the more convinced I was that, you know, he was wronged here and wronged in a, in a very, very bad way, irreparably, actually, you know. I mean, to me, it was a couple of things. It was the fact that he was in jail for three years and just the person himself. I mean, just seeing how broken he was when he was there. So I knew I had to do something. Yeah, I was also, when I first heard of his case, the one thing that really stood out to me was that he was allowed to be in jail for three years without a trial. But we learned that in the United States, every citizen has this right to a speedy trial. So how was he allowed to? So they say. So they say. Yeah, how was that allowed to happen? I think it's very clearly documented in the, you know, in the in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, I, my feeling is that the prosecutors didn't really care. You know, they just showed the disregard for him because he was just another black kid who was in jail on a probation hold. And eventually he would take a plea. So there was no urgency. There was no rush to get him to trial. They probably knew from the outset it wasn't the strongest case based on the time differences in the the time differences between the occurrence and the arrest. So, um, yeah, it just comes down to apathy, if you ask me. Right. That's at that point, you know, three years had passed by, but you know, because they had changed so many prosecutors so many different times and it was in the hands of different judges, nobody really kept track or looked out for him. And I don't think certainly either did his defense attorney at the time. Right. Um, And one of the things, the other thing you said stood out is that he came out feeling obviously very broken. And in the documentary, he mentioned having a hard time finding a job and also uh, mental health care. Is there any sort of protections if you are innocent or your case has been dropped? Um, are employers still allowed to hold that against you once you um, are let out? No, because there there should be no record of it. Right. But you have to understand if you've been incarcerated that long, then just your mere adjustment to life is difficult. Mm-hmm much less getting out in the world and working and assimilating into society. You know, it's like two days, you know, it's like a, another huge step right. someone has to take. Right. That's, I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, but after um, his case and after the wrongful death suit um, was won, do you think that there's been any, like, how has the New York City and United States legal system changed since his case? I think certainly there's been reforms when it comes to solitary confinement. In the city, solitary confinement for juveniles mm-hmm. has been banned or, you know, abolished. Right. And I think uh, also the federal government, you know, his case compelled President Obama to visit a federal prison. And there was, an, there was a ban on solitary confinement for juveniles at the federal level as well. Uh, so I think that's the one thing, the one major thing I take out of it. 
Uh, and there have been talk about so many other reforms. Have they all really come to fruition? I would say not. But uh, I don't, do think it's raised people's awareness uh, who otherwise would not have really paid any attention to like this type of um, issue happening in our jails and in, you know, in, our, in our criminal justice system. When you talk about his case, um, it does seem like something that shouldn't be able to happen. Was this just like failures in our working legal system or is the legal system as it stands just broken? Um, I think it's failures that happen frequently, but this was just on a bigger, grander, longer level. You know, it was just exacerbated his, his case to every possible extent. Namely, the three years without a trial and a dismissal, the two years in solitary confinement. Right. You know, even the arrest process itself, you know, uh, demonstrated the faults of, you know, uh, of eyewitness, of victim identifications. Mm-hmm. You know, every, everything was everything that could have gone wrong went wrong in this case. Clearly, I... I mean, his case is so heartbreaking, and I'm very grateful to, for, to be able to see this docu-series on Netflix that I know you were a part of. Do you think that's, like, a correct and accurate portrayal of his case and what went on? Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a docu-series, mm-hmm. so, and it's on television, right? So it doesn't... It doesn't depict everything that happened, but I think it certainly accurately tells the story of what he went through. Yes. Um, Lastly, since we are a student-run podcast of all undergraduates, do you have any words on law school and finding your path as a lawyer? I I mean, I, I don't think there's any one thing I can say other than You know, everyone sort of finds that passion or their passion at some point. Um, And law is a a, a tricky thing. You know, you may not, you may go into it not knowing anything at all about what you want to do. It's just something that hopefully you will find along the way. You know, it took me like many, many years to find, you know, what, what I felt was like my I guess my, my purpose mm-hmm. or what I do. That's definitely hopeful to hear. It's not, <laughs> I, I did not even want to go to law school. Really? So it, it was like, yeah. How did you get um, into law school? I'm sorry? Like how, how did you find your way to law school? I just, um, you know, my father was an immigrant from Sicily. So when I told him I had other aspirations after college, he sort of, pushed me in that direction, so to speak, because <laughs> he didn't have the opportunities and he wanted me to have those, you know, in my life. And he thought that that would be something reputable for me to do. And it clearly worked out. So, um, I guess so. I guess so. I guess it did. So thank you for speaking with me today. And, um, I'm 
the work that you did for Kaylee's case and for his mom is so amazing to hear um, after all the things that our justice system put him through. So just thank you. Um, Absolutely. I'm so happy that, you know, Khalif's story and uh, just inspired so many people, you know. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and talk to you for a few minutes. So thank you for your time.